0: I'm very delighted this morning to be joined by my colleague Debbie Debbie Evans and by Jenna Platt. Jenna's known as that nurse who asks questions and has been at many rallies and campaigning in many wonderful ways for a very long time during the Covid lockdown um, and everything that has gone with it. Now, uh, by way of introduction, we have a little video of Jenna in action. And I was so struck by this, for reasons which I'll explain uh, once you've seen it, um, I was so struck by it uh, that uh, we, we, we simply had to do a long format interview because we would so many questions. So uh, let's, run the, let's run the video and you'll see what I mean.
1: Hey. A few questions guys so I'm Jenna Platt and I'm gonna ask these police a few questions so I've attended several very peaceful protests and what I've seen is the police attacking people in fact who is this police officer here it's inspector Co- it's, J- it's Jocelyn it's the guy how interesting it's amazing because i actually knew we were going to meet again i knew i was going to meet this guy again some people might recognize me from the video where i filmed his eyes and from the across the shoulder someone films me with him <laughs> all this taxpayer money all these nurses that are too scared to speak out all these patients that aren't receiving their care <laughs> with him any changes in mood since the last time we met do you can't remember what the mood was when you were attacking peaceful protesters? Definitely wasn't doing that. Definitely were. Is that what you're trained to do? Attack peaceful protesters? Is that part of the tactics? We all know it's not. I don't know it's not because I see, I see you attacking peaceful protesters. That's what I see the police doing. Do you think we should be forcibly injecting people mandates? You do realise the difference between choice and coercion? Is coercion illegal? Is it ethical? Is it moral? Do you know what? I knew we were going to meet again. I told everyone. I said, that that Constable Joslyn, we're going to meet again. I knew it. And I really hope that I made a difference to him because when I said about nieces and nephews and children, so I, I felt something some some hit. Some felt something hit there. So I think when the children are involved, guys, you can't keep on following orders. It is going to impact generations. It's going to impact your children. It's going to impact your children's children. Simply following orders, it never goes well in history. Anyway, that's me, guys. It's Jenna Platt. I will see you all soon. I got a little bit emotional then. I knew I was going to see him feel a little bit emotional now I just get really mad because it's just so unjust
0: so that was the video that struck me now there's many things about this right I I think partly just the sheer visual impact of a slightly built blonde nurse challenging a line of heavily armoured police in this way was was quite striking but it it was it was more than that um was in part the way that you went for their conduct police attacking police for peaceful protesters you called it out completely and and plainly and without sugarcoating it you went after you asked about their training you asked about their mood um when he tried to deny there was forcible objection you brought out the the difference between choice and coercion you looked at the you questioned the legal, mor- moral, moral and ethical standards of what he was doing. It was a masterclass in, in, in the position of the freedom-loving people against an oppressive state. Now I I, I watched that and thought, okay, that was a very con- you know compressed uh, length of time. You would had very little time to think on the spot, and it was clearly there. So my question was not not so much where did you get the courage and, and, and determination to do this because you know there's, there's, there, a, a, a lot of the leading people in this movement showing courage and determination are, are, are women and not a small number are, are nurses but where did you get the knowledge to do this where did you learn how to challenge authority in that way it struck me that there must be a substantial backstory because you don't go from nursing to that overnight. There's a, there's a lot of learning involved. Um, so my question was, how on earth did a nurse get to a point where she could do that to, um, a, was that an inspector of police?
2: No, a constable.
0: A constable, a police constable. How, how did you get to the point where you could challenge them so effectively? What's the story? What's the backstory to you being able to do that?
2: COVID. And I was that nurse who wouldn't necessarily challenge authority um, prior to this. I have always had a fight for the underdog and I've, I've always been able to speak out if I see something unjust when it comes to other people. However, I would say that I was quite meek and mild and that I wouldn't necessarily um, challenge authority or I would do it in a less um, potentially, a less potential way where there's conflict involved. However, what I was seeing during COVID, during the lockdowns, there was just too much unjust happening. There was just too much, too much unfairness, unjust, and wrongdoing. And it just, I had to find a way to try and challenge it. And the only thing that I could do was learn how to be assertive and work on my communication.
0: Right. So he said, essentially they've made you, right? Because this, this, this idea of coming from a point of view where. We all have personality traits and in essentially almost any personality trait if taken to an extreme can be can be detrimental if you're mild and gentle but you're too mild and gentle you become a doormat you become un- unable to stand up against injustice etc so um it's it's necessary sometimes to go against um, major aspects of one's personality in order to um maintain a position that is that is morally acceptable. So essentially, essentially it was their imposition of, of of a medical tyranny um that could kind have of drove you to um um uh, to be to become uh to have the skills you now have in terms of communication, in terms of argumentation. Because I thought that was great argumentation as to how you put the the point forward. Um, So, um, you know, that's a that's a that's a long journey. Could you maybe start off with how how you how you made your first steps in this? How you started down the line of of asking questions and and thinking. Well, uh, there's a line, right? There's an unspoken line that most people respect that says, "Keep your head down, keep your nose clean, don't challenge authority, don't do that." keep keep your head down. Don't, don't, don't be the person who 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 causes trouble, who asks the awkward question, who gets everyone riled up. Um, do you recall if there was a particular moment where you you recognized the line as you as you as you strode across it? It's like, okay, I'm I'm crossing this now. This is this is what I must do. Was there a, was there a point in time where you've used you decided i must speak out
2: yeah so i i feel that after watching that video it's kind of it's made me feel quite emotional i'm kind of gathering my thoughts slowly um because it was a completely different world then when i was talking to that police officer you know the it was so tight and intense Mm -hmm. and it felt so necessary to take action and I think for me, the consequences of not doing anything was what motivated me to get past my meek and mild, you know, personality and was to really come out of the shell. And I, I wanted to at least try. And I guess the moment, um, so like many people, I had a mortgage, I had a job, I had things that I was worried that I was going to lose if I rocked the boat too much. And my husband is the spreadsheet guy, the data guy, the numbers guy. And I was the behavior, the communication. And then between us, we were kind of having conversations where something isn't right. And we kept on, you know, being promised that when this happens, we'll get our freedoms back. When this happens, we'll get our freedoms back. When this happens, we'll get it back. And it got to a point where I was like, Rob, this is never going to change. This is just, you know, dangling the carrot, and unless people start to do something. So I was starting to post on Instagram, but I wouldn't show my face because I was scared. And I was think I was aware of how people were being attacked for when they were when they were questioning things. And that's one of the reasons for people being obedient, is because they see what the consequences of disobedience. So I, I was aware of what was happening, and I was thinking, how how can I do something yet minimize the risk of loss? So by asking questions, how can you not ask questions? How can you get how can you get called a conspiracy theorist if you are asking questions? So that was the route that I took. I didn't share information. I was just trying to learn and make sense of what was going on. And for me, the point was, I, I went to two protests in Manchester. I think it was like October and December time. And I could see all these people that were thinking kind of similar things that me and my husband were. And then I believe it was Matt Hancock's 50 million jabs to freedoms. I believe that was it. And it's like, no, no nothing's happened. Nothing's changing. So me and my husband had had a discussion, and if if this promise, if we were let down again, that was it. I was going to do something, and we were let down again. So that's when um, I walked to London.
0: Right. So th- this this is a, a a very critical issue that that you've highlighted there, and and one that we've talked with sometimes seasoned campaigners who have uh, been fighting some aspect of the state for years without actually. Um, grasping this concept. You talked about minimizing risk, you're talking about weighing the risk of opposing the state with the consequences of not doing it and and to position yourself so that you have the least risk for the maximum effect, which is a very wise and, and quite correct way of doing it. Uh, I'd like to bring in Debbie Evans now at this point. I know you've had a long chat with Debbie off air um, uh, and uh, I'd like to uh, ask De- ask Debbie to pick up this this conversation with a few questions, Debbie.
3: Jenna and I have had uh, an amazing conversation and, and I think I just want to make it clear that you know Jenna, you're a, you are a trained nurse, um, you're a trained nurse, you trained in the NHS. and and I mean your determination and the fact that you are so, and I think David said the word that really struck me was wise because you are incredibly wise beyond your years. And I think the gentle way that you've approached this, has been key. But what interested me when we spoke so much was the fact that we were learning about the attitudes of people within care homes and the attitudes of nurses within care homes. And you know, I'm just gonna put a little caveat in there because I know that there are still plenty of people working in the care profession and nursing purely because they want to look after their patients and they refuse to leave because they're so worried that if they do leave, their patients are going to suffer. So I just want to put that caveat in. But similarly, your concerns, a lot of them, were around the um, Nursing and Midwifery Council Code for Conduct. And you know, I, I'd never thought of it until I until you told me. And I went to look at the NMC Code of Conduct, and I know we'll get a shot of it up for for viewers to look at. But actually, your question was very, very simple, Jenna. And it was to other nurses, why are you angry at me? Because people were obviously questioning what you were saying. And you were saying, why are you angry at me? Why are you not angry at the code of conduct? And I would just like to ask you, because I mean, you know, I have I've I've read the code of conduct since. And it says things like you have to treat people as individuals and uphold their dignity you have to treat people with kindness. And when I was nursing, TLC and kindness was key. And I just want to ask you, what kind of reaction did you get from nurses when you said, don't be angry with me, be angry. If you want to be angry, why aren't you angry with the code of conduct? Because you were just literally following your code of conduct. Um, Can you explain that a bit? Because it was so effective. I'm not,
2: Particularly materialistic and I had no fear of I'm not attached to material items. So if I was gonna lose everything, that was fine. I was I was okay about that. I was okay about you know losing my job or losing my house because as I mentioned before, the consequences of taking no action was too painful for me. But there are people who have children, I haven't got children, so there are people who are in different situations to me. And I guess what I wanted to try and do was create knowing, having experience of staff rooms and attitude and knowing how, you know, people might be talking and also feedback from what people were saying in my messages and talking to me. I wanted to almost give people a bit of a a guideline of like how we can have conversations, how we can segue, you know, this conversation in. And if we are sticking to our code of conduct and what part of the NMC code is informed voluntary consent, your answer should be yes, no, not right now. And then after that, anything else is coercion. So I wanted to be able, I was only one person and there was only a limit to what I could do and the people that I could reach. And I wanted people to watch my content I think, oh gosh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good angle to take it. And you know, if if we're sticking to policies, we're sticking to procedure, we're sticking to the NMC code of conduct, how can people say that, you know, I'm all these names the media tell me I'm selfish, I'm a conspiracy theorist was the one that was banded around a lot. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to provide an example of how people could approach these conversations because. As a nurse, we're not there to judge people. We're not there to treat people as kind of groups. In fact, we're told not to use labels. You know, don't use negative terms. Oh, the challenging one. Oh, the one who kicks off. Oh, the diabetic. We're told not to use those terms. And all that was happening was people were giving these blanket terms when they didn't agree with what was being said. So for me, it was how can we chip away at that, at people's um, beliefs and the actions that they're doing. And another thing that's been absolutely key for me is do your words and actions match? So if you say that you are a nurse and that you are following the code of conduct, how? Because what I'm seeing and what people are telling me on the streets, I'm going to force my staff to have it. People aren't coming in the home, um, in care homes. You know, it's my house. It's my rules. I'm not letting that non-mask wearer in. Why are we talking about people like that? And it, it really did cause this um, this reaction in them where I was, I was handing out some papers and they were like, throw them back at me. Um, or there was someone that quite a few comments while I was walking in the streets um, was, well, like they'd see my sign and say, well, that's bullshit, I'm not scared to speak out. And it's like, well, I'm not walking for you. And have you considered that with that attitude, there's actually people in your place of work who don't find you approachable. One, when I was in Manchester and Salford, I actually spoke to a two union reps who saw my sign and were talking to me and they said, Oh, none of our nurses are scared to speak out. None of our nurses have got those concerns that you're talking about. And I asked them, have you spoke to them about it? No, no, no. And I was like, well, would you be able to, like, would you be able to ask them the question, like, do you feel safe talking about this? And they're like, No, no, we don't need to do that, because not all of our nurses are okay. But if you if you are not giving a um a time and place where you can have these conversations because you see your colleague getting bullied and isolated, you're not going to speak out, you're not going to say how you feel. It just head down and carry on, don't cause a scene. So I was really, really trying to offer people. I guess, a way, a method, an, opp- like an opportunity to have these conversations without causing conflict um, during a time where, you know, in the newspaper, we were told that we were the selfish ones. We were the ones causing all the problems. Um, so to try and help as many people as possible um, start having
3: conversations. That brings me on to um, as a nurse, when I when I started my training and I know that this is true for you as well, because we've spoken. But we started nursing because we wanted to do the job. Um, It wasn't about um, being applauded. It wasn't about being treated as a heroine. It wasn't about being called an angel. It was lovely when a patient's family brought us in a box of chocolates when they were being discharged. And it was great to hear your family say to you, we're so proud you're a nurse, but that was it. Did you see attitudes changing the minute the public started standing on the um, doorsteps and and banging pots and pans? Did you find that nurses' attitudes changed and and maybe they were enjoying the attention and enjoying the applause? Um, Because it strikes me, you just said, you know, that staff were being bullied and staff were being they were being coerced and frightened and i dread to think how that was knocking onto the patients and i know we'll come onto that into the the care that you you were hearing about that was going on in in care homes but what were the attitudes of nurses and did you see a big switch when covid started
2: yeah so when i was in chester i i was walking along and i think people see photographs of me like surrounded by people or smiling all the time and i think People don't always associate me with walking on my own and having no idea who I'm going to come across with, like who I'm going to cross paths with. Um, When I was in Chester, I was just walking under the clock and I could see this woman and she was kind of like walking and then walking backwards and then walking to me and then walking backwards and then she changed direction. And just as she was changing direction, I said, are you okay? Like, do you want a conversation? And she's like, are you one of these nurses who say the hospital's are empty? Are you one of these nurses who say it isn't real? Are you one of I was like, no, but do you want a conversation? Like, do you want to find out? And she was like, I've seen things. I've seen that the hospitals are quiet now, but I've seen things. And they was like, but what have you seen? Um, and she was saying about the hospital being busy, but I, my criticism was that they had a very tunnel vision because during furlough, you're going to have more people off and the knock-on effect of not having that chain of um, team where, you know, you're not going to have all the staff there. You're even just putting on and off the PPE and washing your hands and doing even more documentation, like that's going to take up more time. And when you're watching the news and the news is telling you how busy you are, you're going to feel like you're even busier than you normally are. So, I didn't doubt that there were people that were busy, but I was looking at the bigger picture. Um, and for what my experience was the COVID ward nurses and the intensive care ward nurses were the ones who were most angry at me. And back to your question about, um, did they enjoy it? What, what I found is that identity is completely kind of interlinked with people's reaction to COVID. And for me, I don't need I don't feel the need to be part of a group like I'm happy on my own. And I'm happy as part of a group. I'm not particularly attached to an outcome. Whereas I had um, colleagues who I'd done like my training with and they just wanted to hold on to it. They, like they just did not want to let it go because they were now getting flowers at the door Um rainbow banners with like their names stuck on windows around their house. They were getting applauded as they came back from work. They were going to the shops early. They were getting to the front of the queue. They were getting discounts, free food. And for for me and nurse colleagues like that, it was almost like a tug of war where I was like, we should just be doing a job without all of this. And it was like, no, you're taking it away from me. And it was just this this battle of identity. And I so I'm doing my master's in transactional analysis. And one of the points in that, it talks about kind of social conversations and psychological conversations. So what we say at surface level and then what the deeper meaning is. And I think there was a lot of people who were saying, I care, I'm being safe, I'm doing this. And actually, they were getting quite a lot of nice, what we call in TA strokes. Like you're an angel, you're this, go to the front of the queue. Um, and it's when people haven't had that validation it's very difficult for them to no longer have it and I, it makes me think about footballers Premier League footballers who get all this attention and glory and then when they finish playing professional football they turn to alcohol um, and drugs and prostitutes because they, they need some attention from somewhere and it, it makes them um, quite depressed so that that was what what my
0: perspective was. Correct me if I'm wrong, what you're describing there is is really a bit of a fight for the soul of the profession. A fight between those who are seduced by praise and attention and those who are concerned that that the essentials are being lost. Things like um, kindness and respect and Valuing of individual um, autonomy um, that are kind of that are core to 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 the nursing profession. We're being overwhelmed by um, by the state uh, this, by the state manipulation as the state manipulated the whole society. It manipulated the nursing profession. Uh, as well, and possibly more so, in order to get the the desired result. Um, Did you you feel you were in a war, a war for people's hearts and minds, for nurses' hearts and minds?
2: I definitely felt it was a battle. It was, and I think now when, when you talk to people, they've completely forgotten how difficult things were, how intense things were. I know when my husband dropped me off to walk to London, And I've got my little rucksack with me and I walked past a few miles into the walk. I walked past um, police cars and they'd stopped with some police officers. And I genuinely thought I was going to get arrested like at that moment because it was essential travel only. You know, don't go out of like an hour or something away from where you live. And. There was a, when I was walking in London, there was, um, I don't want to name the shop because I don't want to, you know, that's not fair on them, Um, but I was in a shop who were offering me support and, you know, those little grey boxes that are on wheels and like people stand on them to stock shelves, there was one of those in there. So I was sat down and they were like, let me use the toilet, let me have a drink and not to be a drama queen, but I felt like Anne Frank and they were hiding me because every time a customer came into the store, we just stopped talking or we talked about the weather. Like that there was, there was an agreement between all of us without actually saying it that when somebody comes in the shop, we'll, we'll moan about the rain. And it was just so eerie. And that was one of the moments that made me think like, this is
3: so bizarre you really were on your own weren't you i mean when you say you walked to london on your own you didn't have a team of people around you you had a load of power banks in your bag because you were worried to death that your phone charge was gonna run out and you really were Completely on your own. I mean, how how did your husband feel about that? Because it must have been scary. And and you know, when you said about Anne Frank, and I I remember saying to you when we were having a conversation, it's almost like I'm talking to you as the French Resistance, because you were getting smuggled into people's homes to be able to sleep on their so sofa overnight. I mean, it's completely extraordinary your walk. But tell us about how you felt on your own, because I know that you did feel threatened at at some points and you were scared and I think there was even a a a time where you were considering purchasing a stab vest is that right
2: yes it is um so I'm uncomfortable because I'm shifting around in my um, chair now so Yes, it did feel like a risk. I had no idea who I was going to come into contact with. I was given my location on the walks. And the reason for that was because I wanted people to meet up with me so that then they could have contacts and connections within their local community. So I would help these people connect and then I'd go into the next city and things. And then people were were so mad. And with you saying about a, a battle, There was also a lot of friendly fire where there was a lot of people who, you know, were in agreement with what I was saying. They were just not in agreement with the methods I was using. And they would put stuff out there saying I was a shill and controlled opposition. So it really felt like I was getting it from both sides. And there was a a time where it was before the vaccine passports got dropped so i'd got a van because i was going to do another tour for the vaccine passports but i had a van this time um to try and get through a loophole of the um the social media censorship so i thought well with a van even more people will be able to see my message rather than just having a sandwich board down a street um and i was just getting all of these really angry voice messages and like people posting stories about me and and I, I was going to go to Ireland on this because this it was going to be my first one. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting the ferry, so I'm long, I'm a long way from home. And yeah, I did. I had a look at a stab proof vest and I, and I was unable to talk to my husband about it because and I know I start crying because if I'd have spoken to my husband about that, he would have wanted me to stop. <laughs> I'm okay. He would have wanted me to stop and I didn't want people to be aware that I was scared because there was a lot of fear. So a lot of people criticized me for smiling and having all these pictures taken, but I didn't want, there was so much fear about, like, I just wanted kind of a neutral content, I guess, on social media. So I was looking for a stab proof vest that I could wear under my uniform. That wasn't obvious. So like a slimline one that, you know, I could wear and nobody would know because it really felt like I was a target Um, and I'm not one to overreact. And I think very often I I underreact. So I really was concerned. And yeah, I didn't feel like I had anyone that I could have that conversation with at the time, because if you're saying even on social media, they just tell you you're being a victim and you, you know, whatever. And I couldn't have it with my husband because he would have wanted me to stop.
3: And I think what's most extraordinary to Jenna, is that you, you know, though you're an NHS trained nurse, your job is to train other nurses. So you are prepared to lose everything for this cause. I mean, this wasn't just any old walk to London. This was a walk to London in in the most, um, when you said intense, you know, when you look back at that video that we saw earlier on in your interview, you could see how intense it was and how surreal almost looking back at that world that you know you couldn't even go out for a walk without being frightened that you were going to be arrested. But you you've, you've got to the point where you are prepared, you have been prepared to lose everything. So that your staff and the people that you work with, they they will get they would be okay, but you would potentially lose everything. And I know that you haven't just done the walk. I mean. I have to, I have to bring this up because I just love it, what you can do, the things that nurses can do, actually, or anybody can do with a rainbow and a high viz. And I'm not going to say any more. I'm not going to steal your thunder, General. I'm going to let you tell the story of the uh, the rainbow sign and the high viz, because I think our viewers and listeners will love it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so back to what you said about losing everything, we had a conversation. So I would never want anyone to feel insecure or worried about actions that I was taking. So we had a conversation with our team that said, and we said, sorry, if any backlash comes, if anything happens um, with work, then we will sell our house to be able to pay your wages. You know, we were prepared to do whatever it took, but also make people feel comfortable um, about what I was doing because we have got responsibilities and yeah so with the rainbow so <laughs> i was going to wales because they brought in the vaccine passports i think for large events from memory and myself and my friend were going to cardiff to put out some posters and have some conversations to find out you know what what was on the mind of people so we got designed a a little logo with a rainbow and um it said getting back to normal safely and sensibly and we got a hat, we got a high vis, we got a rainbow lanyard, we put masks on our wrists um, and we stopped at every service station from Stoke-on-Trent to Cardiff with our little uh, kind of cleaning trolley equipment and stuff and we took down all the outdated signs um, because I just felt that people needed space for their brain to stop receiving all of these, like just being bombarded. Um, and nobody stopped us. Nobody said anything. Nobody questioned what we were doing. Um, and then we got to Cardiff and we we didn't even know whether we could go in restaurants because we weren't sure what what the rules were. But I think it was just like concerts and things. So we were having something to eat and we were prepping for the, the day after and we were just talking to people about how they were feeling and nobody seemed bothered. Nobody seemed to think about like the long-term impact and I was trying to have conversations and this one woman in particular, she was saying that she agreed with it Um, and I said, but you know you can get COVID with or without the vaccine and she's like, yeah, but it just, you know, it just, it just will help people and I was like, but who? Who is it gonna help? And she's like, Well, you know, they'll they'll if you've not had it, you'll be tested. And if you've had it, you do not need to be tested. I was like, but well, everyone can have it. And then she was she was going around in circles and I said, the, and she said, Oh, it's really it's really difficult to explain. I said, Yeah, when things don't make sense, it really is difficult to explain. And I think with that conversation with that lady, and in reference to Constable Goslin. I think there has to be a point in realizing when you need to stop the conversation as well. So on that video, you'll, see me, you'll hear me say, I knew we were going to meet again. So I tried to defuse the situation because I felt that it was he was at a point where either he might get mad or his colleagues might get mad. So I think it is important to know when to stop and to know when to defuse it, because curiosity is better than conflict.
0: I love the story about the uh, the vis in the lanyard. Um, it reminds me of one of the, uh, in a kind of similar vein, um, uh, a story from uh, fighting against educational abuses. John Taylor Gatto um, was teaching in a, a very deprived area of New York City, but New York obviously has lots of attractions and he wanted to take the kids, to various museums and the Federal Reserve and all the rest of it, but they had, they had rules and it basically didn't say no poor black kids, but what it did is it put in limits on the ratio of teachers to pupils that only the fee-paying, uh, very expensive schools could, could match and the public schools could not. So effectively it effectively prevented public schools from going to any of these places. So what Gatto said is he got some of his taller kids and said right, you're going to be teachers and they said what? How, how we? He said no, 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 it's about attitude and, and demeanor and how you hold yourself. We'll teach you how to act like an adult. You get a clipboard, stand up straight. It'll be fine. And, and he did this for about a decade and he was never called once. Everyone absolutely accepted that the person he said was a teacher was a teacher, even though it was actually a pupil. Because they had the confidence to go and do it and they beat the system and they beat the system because they recognised the system was being intensely unhelpful, counterproductive, um, and was 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 being a limit on human thriving, not an advantage to human thriving. So th- this isn't the same spirit. This is very good. Um, and I, I would say just in passing that the, your your point about knowing where to stop and the and the style in which you approach the interactions. Um, You talked about how you're you're very often pictured smiling. And I actually think this is one of the most powerful things you do. Because if you had done that with an aggressive, angry tone and lots of swearing, A, it would have turned people off. Um, Fewer people would have listened to the message. And it would have been far more easy for them to characterise you as some sort of extremist and all the rest of it. and, and second it would been easier for them to to make a case that you were in some way a threat and, and act act against you legally so the demeanor with which you did these things um, was actually a was actually a hugely powerful move on your part um, I, the, the next question I'd like to get to because you were talking about the, the the very oppressive dark times and it and it, and it does take a bit of imagination now, to sit and recall how bad it was just a year ago or 18 months ago, just how deeply oppressive the entire society had become. Um, I, and I want you to uh, let us know how you see things have changed and perhaps say a few words about why you think they've changed. I, I went into hospital to see a, a close a close relative, a loved one, not that long ago. Um, and they were still doing the, the masks must be worn thing. And there was signs and mostly it was being, um, it was being carried out inside the hospital. So though generally the society had eased off this. Um, so I went in and the nurse said to me, uh, Can you put a mask on please? And I smiled at her and said, I'm, I'm medically exempt. Is that a problem? And the reaction was really interesting because she didn't answer the question. She just ignored the issue. Right? She didn't say it's not a problem. I didn't say quite all right, sir. I didn't say no, Why um, you're gonna have to put a mask on. She didn't say anything. She just she just ignored the issue and dropped the subject. And I went on as I was, unmasked and no one bothered me. And it was like, well, they can't actually say it's okay because there's fear there, there's uncertainty about where the position is, but they're no longer having the confidence to be very aggressive and dictatorial and throw me out the hospital. Um, so something's shifted, something's changed. So what have you seen change over the last the last year or so? And, and if you can identify any reasons, why do you think it's changed?
2: I think the first reason is that they're not being told to do that so you know there's not that in the news anymore where you have to be scared of the people not wearing a mask or so they're the selfish ones so I think there's the, the the not getting the social cues and the social permission and the social support to be able to carry that out and I think that's very important and when so the walk took me um, I started in February and I finished in September it wasn't a Consist, like it wasn't every day but that was how long it took me and in in those few months I could see the difference in the conversations people were having me be, with me because at the beginning of my walk some people would come up to me I remember one nurse she was a district nurse and she whispered thank you and then scurried off she was so scared that a colleague might take a picture of her or might see her in the car park and send it to her matron that um that she would be kind of called into like a disciplinary or something. Whereas when I finished the walk, people were a lot more open to conversations and a lot more open to ask me questions about what I was doing. So I think the the social cues of what is and what isn't acceptable, because if you're given permission to act in a certain way and you almost get praised for doing that, I was in a supermarket and the security guard you know shouted at me in front of everyone and then that gave permission to all of the shoppers who could hear him with their trolleys kind of walk towards me and start shouting at me as well I don't think that is there anymore and I think that is a direct effect of the media um not not having these shocking headlines and, and not telling people who to be scared of and one of the big learnings for me is people don't dislike discrimination. They dislike being discriminated against. And I think that's the majority of people. For me, I don't like discrimination and my words and actions match that. So what I was doing, I, I wasn't telling people not to have a, a medical intervention if, if that's what they want. And they've read it and they've not been coerced and they are doing it based on what they're reading and, and reasons for themselves. I was not discriminating against. It was about informed voluntary um, consent. However, the majority of people, it's not that they dislike discrimination, it's that they dislike being discriminated themselves. So then they will bark at you first so that they don't um, lose their place in the group.
0: Yes, I see. Uh, just before I hand over to to Debbie for, for the final question today, uh, did you ever work out how far you walked?
2: No, I didn't. Do you know what I wish? Kind of like, in hindsight, I wish what I'd done is, one, worked out how long I walked. But some days I didn't even walk that far because I would be stood just talking to lots of people. So sometimes that that was just as effective. I'd be in a city, but I wouldn't necessarily walk very far. Um, so I, I wish I'd done that. And I also wish that I'd had, you know, those little... Um, Like a metal counter thingy where you like click it. I wish I'd had one of those to count how many people that I'd had um, a
3: conversation with. Jenna, I, you know what? I mean, I think we're going to have to do another interview because there's so much more to cover, including everything that you'd encountered within care homes. And I know, I, I just quickly before we finish up, I just want you to, to elaborate a bit on something that you said to me, which really it really struck home with me and you said that you were seeing attitudes of people with care homes saying it's my care home my rules so basically they were coming in really heavy with their rules I mean how did you feel how, how did you manage that situation when people were doing that because that's quite hostile
2: Yeah, so there were a lot of online forums. um, And I could see people having conversations that were using the words, you know, I'm going to force all my staff um, to have the injection, and I'm going to make sure they do this, and they're not working if they don't. And if you know, if they don't have it, they're not getting any hours. And it was so aggressive. But then the group would all just like all the comments, you know, they'd all thrive around it. And they would say that, you know, people aren't coming into their home and, you know, working in care of the elderly and end of life care, it was never our home. It was the people who pay to live there and we're there to support them. So again, the words and actions aren't matching at all. And one of the most tragic stories that people um, told me was, there was a lady and I can see it happening. There was a lady who her dad was dying and they wouldn't let her in, but they said, we were so lucky. He had a window. We were so lucky he was on the ground floor because we could walk up to his window. And this guy was dying. And that was my motivation again for, for doing this, because I just couldn't, I just couldn't bear people dying alone. And this guy was dying and he kind of was trying to turn around, um, to like reach to the window and he died. And the day after the care home rang the family up and said, Oh, you can come and collect these things now. So they were allowed in the home to collect his belongings but they weren't allowed in the home to hold his hand. And the guy was dying, he was going to die. And people say that I'm cold for talking like that, but we weren't gonna stop him from dying, but we could have stopped him from dying alone. And yeah, that, that, that was too much for me. Um, and in that video, the first video with um, Constable Joslin. That was, I repeated that like just constantly when I first encountered him because we only get one opportunity to facilitate a good death. We only get one opportunity to put things in place, support the individual, meet their needs, have conversations with the family, let them know what maybe to expect and it it's that's the last thing that the people remember that's the last thing that believes them and then you know having the the period of anger frustration during the death and then having the difficult task of arranging the funeral yeah what what happened it was just it was awful um and a lot of people now from what i can see it's almost like the um that's just thrown to the back of the head. Like, no, that wasn't me, that didn't happen. Like, I, I, wouldn't, I would never have said that because they're no longer in that situation where they've got that social acceptance of saying these
3: horrible things. And I think that's what's so tragic. And I think that's why any nurses that are listening to this interview, um, I think everyone will be able to identify with the TLC and kindness and holding hands. And, you know, it wasn't our place to give someone an inflatable glove to to, to hold when they were dying. It was our hands they needed to hold and we couldn't be there for them. I think to to, to finish on, I just want everyone to know that you are currently under a pre-investigation of the NMC. um, And we won't go any further into that, but I just want people to know that, you know, you are under a lot of pressure and you, you know, you are being investigated. And also, your husband has been in the most phenomenal support I know. And I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know, I I don't know many husbands that would, would be able to drop their wives off and let them walk 150 miles. I mean, I can't imagine how worried and I know that he was incredibly worried. And I know that one of your big concerns was not worrying him. So it was kind of a double edged sword. But you know it's cost you an awful lot of money jenna and you've never asked for any help and you still don't ask for any help because you've said this is this is this is what you feel you want to do but it's cost literally tens of thousands of pounds in vans and hotel fees and travel fees you've literally put your life on the line your your very being on the line for this cause for something that you feel so desperately passionate about which we all do and my admiration is just huge for you but i think my final question is jenna what next because you 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 must you must be writing a book surely because there are enough stories to fill a book so what next for jenna so i am writing a book
2: Um, so I have got a work project, which I am two years behind and I've been promising my husband that I will complete it. So I must complete it because he has just been, as you say, he's been phenomenal and so supportive and I really couldn't have done it without him. It was a team effort. I was front of house and he was back of house, like we were a team. Um, so I must get this work project done. So that'll be complete by April. And then I am full throttle. I'm writing my book, I'm doing um, my podcast and also discussing the lessons that I've learned doing a podcast, which were quite a lot. In the book, I want it to be my experience, but I also want to have the stories. So if I'm talking about coercion, I want a story of somebody who experienced that and to tell their story. I don't just want it to be me um, talking all the way through. So I want to give other people a voice um, in the book. And then next year, um, I want to do a documentary not about me, but about the um, the psychology around the the narratives and why people don't want to let go um, and they put themselves at risk to be part of a group. and one one thing that one of my lecturers said and um, that I said to you was, one of the questions that she said was, How much of yourself are you willing to lose to be part of a group? And I think when we consider everything that's happened, some people have lost everything. Some people have just completely given themselves to the media narratives. And for me, what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to go over and, you know, lose myself in what I was doing. So I still try and keep my feet on the ground and make sure that I'm making up for lost time of, you know, Doing things with my husband and going out with the dogs and stuff, so that I do kind of try and stay
0: grounded. That's absolutely vital. Everyone at the UK column would attest to that. And uh, I want to thank you. I Want to close today by just thanking you, uh, Jenna, for uh, for talking to us today. It's been fascinating listening to to you. I suspect uh, Debbie will absolutely insist on having a round two of this. I I can I can feel all the questions bubbling up in her. So. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Jenna, for for the moment. Uh, Thank you, Debbie. And uh, until next time, um, goodbye.